All right, our sermon this morning continues in Faith and Action series through the book of James. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says... God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Thanks, Cindy. Welcome to Current. I'm David, pastor here. Uh, let's pray as we get into God's Word together. Father, thank you for this very relevant uh, passage, this text that talks about conflict, relational conflict. Uh, Lord, this is just something that each of us uh, deals with from time to time, or maybe uh, some of us, many of us are, are in conflict now. Lord, would you, just help, uh, would you just help us where we are? Would you give us your spirit as we try to understand what you'd have for us today from your Word? Uh, Lord, give me your spirit, I ask, that I would get out of the way and we'd, we'd understand what you have for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, okay, so today's topic is relational conflict. And it seems to me that when it comes to conflict, we either try our best to avoid it altogether, or when we do actually engage, we handle it pretty poorly. Uh, there's a story of a guy who was on a train sitting in between two gals who were fighting over the window. And uh, what happened was uh, they were just fighting, fighting, fighting. One gal was saying, it's just so hot, leave the window open or I'll die of heat stroke. Uh, the other gal was saying, no, it's too cold, shut the window or I'll die from pneumonia. And on and on it went back and forth such that they brought others to try to get involved, to try to resolve this conflict. Nobody can do it until finally the man spoke up. He said, the guy sitting in the middle said, I've got it, I've got it figured out. Let's first leave the window open until it kills that one and then shut it and we'll kill that one and then we'll have peace. Um, Hopefully your commute isn't as bad as that, but it's, it shows the point that we, we often don't handle conflict in the best of ways. Uh, we often don't handle conflict in a way that, that brings life, but rather oftentimes when we handle conflict, it brings uh, pain, brings hurt. Uh, or maybe it's, when you've, uh, maybe it's the way you've seen uh, others handle it around you, the way in which you saw your parents uh, handle conflict growing up, or friends uh, uh, handle conflict, the way that they've gone about handling it has brought pain, maybe even uh, uh, in your life. But what's so great about James then is that he, as this early Christian pastor, is helping them, helping us see that uh, there's, there's a way to approach conflict that is vastly different than the way that you or I typically, our, our culture even, typically deals with conflict. 
Um, often when I get together with couples who are about to get married, I'll ask them, how do you, you know, where, where have you learned to deal with conflict? Like, what, how have you seen it modeled in your life? I wonder if that's a question we can ask ourselves today, actually, is how have, in what ways have you learned to deal with conflict? Because I think for some, uh, for the way that you saw conflict growing up was, was probably more in the explosive manner, maybe. Uh, you know, just the real sharp, loud words that just brought about, you know, pain and, and, and hurt that way. Or maybe the extreme opposite of that, maybe the way you saw conflict handled growing up was more just you didn't see it really handled at all. I mean, it was just one of those things where it was just buried and just not really, really thought about altogether. Uh, but one thing is certain that we, is that we all are dealing with conflict. And, and in dealing with conflict, there's great uh, potential to bring about great brokenness. But what if the way we handle conflict actually could bring about life, could bring about healing? Uh, what we're going to see today in James as he's kind of working through this conflict with this early church are five things that can help us in dealing with conflict. So let's, let's go ahead and jump right in. The first thought here is uh, we need to understand that conflict happens. If you look at verses 1 and 11, he's, say, he's just making the straightforward point, conflict is going to happen. Just give it some time. If you're not in it now, you'll have conflict that you'll need to deal with. Uh, I remember when Cindy and I were living in China, I was serving at one of, uh, as one of the two pastors at an expatriate church, international church there. Um, big church, about 2,500 to 3,000 people, um, and most of whom were very diverse, very international uh, you know, so English wasn't the first language of most of the people in this congregation. wasn't even like often the second language of most folks. But because you know English being the universal language that it is, we'd come together and and have these church services in English. So I'd be preaching to this crowd, okay, a big big group of people where English isn't their first or second language. Well, I remember a time when I was preaching, and I made a point just kind of offhandedly, or actually while I was making a point, I offhandedly said, "Oh yeah, Cindy and I were in a fight, and you know, do do do, this has happened." And I just kept kept moving on. And I didn't think any big deal. I don't remember that sermon at all. I don't even remember the point I was making. But I do remember that I made that comment. Because after that sermon, I got done. And there was just a crowd kind of forming down at the base of the stage. You know, big group of people. And sometimes, you know, especially a group that large, you'll have some people there who want to talk to the pastor and all that. But there was a bigger group. I was like, okay, what are we going to talk about here? And when I started to walk down, a gal was just really excited. She's like, I just want to come up and talk to you. Pastor, thank you so much for such a helpful message. I was like, oh, great. You know, what was, so, what was so helpful about it? She said, it was so helpful to hear that you fight. It's like, oh, I'm glad that was, uh, that was helpful. Yeah, it's so encouraging to hear that pastors fight too. It's like, yeah, again, I'm very happy to help you. Uh, and that was the gist of what everybody down there was saying. Remember, these are folks coming from all over the world, many different cultures, where they hadn't perhaps heard the pastors fight. If I said that to you guys, sitting there in a fight the other day, you'd be like, duh, you know, I was like... But I also, one of the thoughts that I was, one of my takeaways from that moment is like, man, I got to really watch the choice of language that I use, especially in that congregation. Like, fight? Did they think I was going? We were going fisticuffs or something? Like, like we had an, you know, we had a disagreement and argue, you know, we had to work through something, some differences. Probably how I'd say it going back. But um, anyway, fights. I mean, fights. Conflict. Conflict happens. James is writing to this early Christian church. Uh, and verses 1 and 11, if you look at them, 1 says, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Remember, this is a strong group of Christians. Uh, these were folks who were undergoing persecution not long after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So they took their faith very seriously. Actually, in a few years, many of them would be killed for their faith. And if you look down at verse 11, it says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. The grammar there actually is saying, Stop speaking. 
slander towards each other. Actually, it's more broadly speaking. The word there is stop speaking ill towards each other. Uh, Cease and desist of something that's already happening, church, is what James is saying. And I find it really interesting, really helpful, that he uses military terms to describe what he's talking about here. He says, you know, he's talking about fights and quarrels. These are, these are actual military words. So the word fight literally means armed combat. Have you ever gone into conflict that way? Have you ever gone into conflict saying, you know what, I've got this, all, I got this figured out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've, got, I've got the plan. I've got the, I've got the preparation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack in this way, and I'm going to be victorious. Um, I think a lot of our conflicts can go that way. Uh, quarrels literally means uh, verbal disputes. Again, James is knowledge, acknowledging that these sorts of relational conflict happen, yes, even in the church. Uh, one of the things that makes me nervous from time to time is when, when somebody will come up to me and say, oh, wow, isn't current so wonderful? And we're, we're very thankful for how God is building this church. But every time I hear that statement, if you've ever been there when I've heard that statement, I'm always quick to say, but remember, we're not a perfect church. Uh, we're far from it. Um, just give it some time, and we'll have to work it out. Uh, sometimes people will say, when, when conflict arises in the church, oh, I thought church was family. But that's just it. We're, we're family, and conflict, conflict will arise. Uh, verbal disputes, James is saying, will arise. But when it does arise in the church, in the family, with friends, in the workplace, the goal is not to pretend that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter. The goal is to face it in such a way that brings healing and life. That's the first thing James wants us to know is that conflict happens. Second thought, the cause lies within you and me. Uh, look at verses 2 and 3. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Here's what James is saying. He's showing them, showing us, that it is important not just to understand what it is that's being argued about, but why it is we are arguing. You following me? So have you ever been in a, an argument, for instance, where like, whether it's like after the argument has progressed for a while or you know, a while after the argument, just kind of looking back, and you kind of have the thought of like, what was it we were arguing about? Like, what was it really that little thing that got to this place that we were in the end, actually argue about anybody ever? Just me? Okay, pastors do that too. Don't form a line up here. Um, there's, there's, there's often times, we know this, where we're arguing about something, James is saying, but don't just focus on the occasion of the argument. Focus on what's happening underneath. So if you're, you're arguing or you're in conflict over finances or like what plans to make or, or those sorts of things, understand that, hey, there might be some things that, yeah, you, need, you know, are contributing to that conflict, but underneath it, there's something else going on entirely. Uh, James is saying, the Bible says very clearly that we will not be able to deal with any conflict rightly unless we first identify the source. And what James is saying is, as he's, as he's digging deeper here, he says, we need to dig deeper. Uh, put simply, he's saying our desires are at war with each other and at war with God. In other words, the source of our relational conflict is actually a spiritual conflict, the Bible says. Our desires are at war with each other because we don't have, because we, we don't ask, and whatever we don't have, we are coveting. And coveting, after all, is making something, an object, into an ultimate concern. It's saying some, of something, I want it so badly that I'll do whatever it takes to get that. You know, so, for instance, uh, you know, I just, they have that relationship or set of relationships that I, I want, but I don't have. Or they have that job that, that I, I, I don't have, but I, I really want it. 
or the possessions or they, they get to do things or they are doing things that I, don't, I, I want to do but I don't get to do. And so often our arguments are fueled by this coveting. Uh, there's an anger that, that swells within us. In fact, if you look again at verse 2, it says, you desire but you do not have. That word desire in the, in the original language, we've talked about this before, bear with me as we get technical a little bit here, is the Greek word epithumia. So thumia does mean the word desire. But epi, we don't really have a translation to kind of capture the word in its entire, means over. So literally what James is saying is our over desires. The old King James usually translates this word as lust, but that tends to have like a negative connotation. It's just over desires. In other words, good things can be things that we make our ultimate thing at the detriment of others' conflict. And we've seen that happen. For instance, in the home where a husband and wife might, uh, one of them might say, you know what, the kids are more important than the other. And that affects the relationship or at least brings conflict. Or with a group of friends or, or, or at home with a roommate, like, because the job is so important, it brings and can produce conflict in such a way. Uh, what James is saying is these over-desires, this covetous nature within our, within our hearts bleeds into conflict. Uh, bleeds us into conflict, or when conflict arises, it affects how we respond. Um, and so uh, we need to be careful. And there can be, become just a, a hard hardness, a ruthlessness uh, in our hearts that, if left unchecked, can bring about a real pain and real brokenness. Uh, I'm not a professional counselor, um, but I'm a pastor, and I do do some counseling, so I, I'm, I'm paying attention. Is what professional counselors will tell you is that very often when we're in conflict, we're bringing into the conflict a narrative. If you, I don't know if you've heard this before, but like we have this narrative that we bring into conflict, a story, or if you prefer, a kind of a film reel, reel that, hey, this is my interpretation of events. And we are very skewed in terms of how we understand our narrative, typically as opposed to the person who's bringing their narrative. Often how these narratives will play out is, I've been wrong, I'm the victim, you're the villain, I'm going to bring you to justice. I'm going to take you down. Um, this is not to say that narratives are wrong in and of themselves. Uh, it's not to say that feelings are wrong. They're not. They just are. But we need to recognize that how we interpret things is very important because it may or may not actually be the case. And we need to be aware that those things are happening. So, to get practical here, in the moments of conflict or argument, let me ask, what story are you bringing into that conflict? Maybe you're in conflict now. What, story, what narrative do you have? What film reel are you, are you watching of yourself and of the other or others as this plays out? Because no doubt you have been wronged, okay? But are we ever truly innocent ourselves? I think James wants us to grapple with. Now, James is saying, if left to themselves, these over-desires, this coveting-type nature within our hearts... Uh, can bring about real pain. It can bring about real destruction. So he summarizes this attitude in verse 6 when he calls it pride. If you look down there, he says, he's basically saying it is pride and selfishness that is the default, our default way of handling uh, conflict often. And if you're like me, uh, this is hard to hear because uh, when you engage in conflict, you tend to think that you're right. Um, but James is saying, no, we need to watch that spirit in us. Uh, there's a number of books out on the market today. Uh, Crucial Conversations is a, is a good one. There's another book called uh, Difficult Conversations. Um, not necessarily Christian books, but really helpful on these kind of thoughts uh, on, this, on this topic. 
Um, one of them, it, it talks about the nature of conflict in terms of most of the time we don't really know all the facts, but we very much are driven by our strong emotions. And the fact is that we uh, re- can really quickly, because of this uh, urge to blame others, uh, we, we tell ourselves, I don't want to be at fault, I don't want to be at fault, so we quickly find fault in others. James takes that even deeper, and he's calling it pride. He's saying, this is spiritual pride. If you've been here over the last few weeks, this is kind of picking up and building on that. Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride causes, for instance, us to see the faults of others uh, without, w- while being blind to ourselves. Um, we see what's wrong in the other person. Have you ever, have you ever been in a, an argument with somebody, and they're saying something to you, and it's, you're quick to be like, oh, that's what you're blaming me for, um, and how it goes back and forth like that. Spiritual pride can make us blind to our own uh, uh, and, and as we see only the faults in others. Spiritual pride causes us to treat others without compassion and without mercy. Have you ever been in an argument where someone's correcting you, and boy, what they're saying has a ring of truth to it, and oh, I don't really, you know, you want mercy in that instance, but then flip that script a little bit. When you find something wrong in someone else, it's not so much about mercy as it is about wanting to condemn the other. Uh, spiritual pride also causes us to give up on others when they correct us. The minute someone kind of approaches us to kind of speak into our lives, maybe a little bit of correction, it's like, no, no, the relationship's now done. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And then spiritual pride also leaves us full of self-pity. Now, this is one I thought really interesting in my study this week. Uh, this is one of the biggest marks of spiritual pride, actually, is self-pity. Um, because in your own mind, you believe that you know how things ought to go. The narrative we can tell ourselves is, you know, I'm a pretty decent person. I've, I've, been, I've been doing my part. I'm sacrificing. Therefore, I deserve to be treated better by you. Or therefore, I deserve life to go a little bit better. If you want a classic example of this kind of spiritual pride, look to Luke 15 later. Look to the, the, the story of the prodigal son and look to the elder brother, his response to the figure that Jesus in that story depicts as God is saying, hey, but I've done my part. Why are you loving this other brother who's not done a good job? This guy's in conflict with God himself, which I think speaks very much to what James is saying here. Uh, in short, spiritual pride is living like you know better than God and you, your needs are more important than others. Um, but what James is saying here, and it's really one of the unique things about Scripture, is he's telling us that our desires can often be a mixed bag. They can often be tainted. They can often be full of contradictions. Not all of them are actually good. And so, and so, the Bible calls us to, James is calling us to interpret our desires. Ask ourselves in the midst of conflict, what is it I actually want? What is it that's driving me? Um, what is it that, that, uh, that I'm really concerned with? Sure, we might be arguing about this or the conflict might be around this, but is there a deeper desire going on underneath. So real quickly, we don't have time to spend too much here, but a lot of people are driven into conflict and what, by what's really going on on the surface is their, their want for affection and attention. Um, you know, you're, you're arguing about this, you're arguing about that, but really I just need, I just need attention and affection. If you don't give that to me, I'm going to let you know. Uh, others, they're driven by their need for power. You want control. And actually, arguments are hard for you because it's your way or the highway, and if you don't get what you want, then maybe it's, you're going to be perceived as weak, or maybe you're going to be perceived as not having been right. Gasp, like that, you'd be, that you would not be right. 
Others are driven by comfort. Others are driven by a need to feel respected. And if we don't get these things, we're irked, we're upset, we're driven to conflict. Or if and when conflict arises, we, we respond with that kind of lurking underneath it all. But here's the thing. Pride doesn't just lead us into conflict. It can also lead us away from conflict. Um, I had somebody very close to, my, close to me uh, many, many years ago um, get into just some stuff that was just really hard on him and, and, and people that he was connected to. And I had other friends who were just kind of observing this, not really a part of this person's life, and they were just kind of saying, David, don't, don't, you, think it's, don't you think you probably should say something? Don't you think you should probably you know, speak into that a little bit? And what I had been telling myself is, no, 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 I love them too much. I'm not going you know, to talk to them about that. But then what I really actually had to grapple with is, actually, is, is was it more that I loved myself too much to not engage in that conversation because I just wasn't looking forward to having that conversation? That was pride. Um, James is saying when it comes to facing conflict, we need to start by looking within. Start by asking, what, is, what are my desires? What is driving me? Two very, very quick thoughts he gives us to, to deal with this. is Number one is to pray. Um, if you look at verse 2, he says, you, you have not because you ask not. James is saying, you didn't pray for it. You didn't ask God for the desires that you, you have there. You didn't work it through with him. But the other issue, he says, if and when we do praise, we're praying for the wrong motives. If you look at that, verse 3. In other words, we're making God into a genie God, or we're making uh, prayer into a consumer transaction. But both of these things are basically keeping us in control. Life should go the way I believe it should go, and God, you need to fall in with that plan. Um, but James is saying here, no, 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 it's a matter of the heart. We need to get to the source of it. So number one, conflict happens. Number two, we need to look for the cause within yourself first. And then three, God is jealous, and that's a good thing. Uh, this is an interesting thought here because the point sort of takes a, a turn a little bit. Uh, James kind of is making this point about conflict, and all of a sudden come these verses. So listen to them, and then we'll, we'll relate them back to his, his main point here. He says, verse four, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God is described here as a jealous God. The logic James is laying out is to be at home with God is to be at odds with what's against him. To be at home with evil is to be at odds with with God. And so he talks about friendship with the world. What does that mean? He's talking there about adopting the values of the world that are against God and his ways. And here's why that matters so much. Jesus said the primary way that his followers will be known as his followers is in our love for one another and how we show and share that love with others. Therefore, a lack of love with others reveals not just how we are relating to them, it also it reveals a problem in which we are relating to God himself. And the language James uses here is really powerful. He says, you adulterous people. That harkens back to the Hebrew scriptures written before Jesus' life uh, when, when he came. It, it, you know, this, God would often describe his relationship with his people as husband and wife. He'd talk about our relationship uh, to him in those ways. So here's a way I've, I've, I've heard it said. So when we have disordered affection towards others, it, it actually shows the disordered affection we have towards God. Uh, and so to help us understand this, James is using this language of jealousy. Now, what does that mean, that God is jealous? I remember when I was younger, when I first came across this thought, it really kind of, uh, kind of confused me. God's jealous? Like, 
Is that okay? Like, is that, is that allowed? You know, like, is God jealous? Uh, and so I had, to, I had to wrestle with that. We need to wrestle with that. What, what does it mean to be jealous? Jealous, uh, by definition, is a passionate desire to protect what a rival threatens to take. It's a passionate desire to protect something that belongs to you. So a legitimate example of jealousy, for instance, is the relationship between husband and wife. It's, you know, it's protecting the exclusivity of that a relationship and being jealous for that spouse. And if and when things threaten that or hurt that, it's, it's being jealous for that. It's going for that. It's continuing in that, striving for that. Therefore, when it says God is jealous, it's not saying that God is up in heaven saying, oh, I'm so, I'm so jealous of those people down there. They have the life. They have all the good things. Uh, God is not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. And uh, he's not scared that you might find a better God. He is only heartbroken that you would settle for a false one. Here's what really struck me this, this week um, from these words. It's, it, James is showing us that, that, that God is fiercely, fiercely relational. He just, he just has a burning love for each and every person. And his love is not destructive. It's protective. It doesn't inflict harm. It produces love. God is not jealous in spite of his love, but because of his love. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, it says in verse 5, his spirit dwells in you, lives in you. And so if and when you and I go in a wrong direction, that same spirit says to us, no, no, don't go in that direction. Uh, many of us are probably, or might be in that place now. Fourth thought, uh, there's grace for every single need. Uh, this is in verse 6. Um, James says, but he, that is God, but God gives more grace. Um, of all the verses in James, this is near the, the, the very top for me in terms of favorite verses. Uh, he's saying, however far the human heart has gone, God's love goes farther still. Uh, we sing from time to time the song lyric, uh, my sin is great, but your love is greater. That lyric that I love so much is echoing uh, this verse. Um, and it really gets at the heart of Christianity. What makes Christianity so unique among other religions? Because at this point in James' writing, you would probably expect him to say something like, okay, now figure this all out, guys. You know, work your, just get better at conflict. Get yourself acceptable before God or else. But he doesn't do that, does he? Um, now, to be clear, James is very much pushing towards a response. He's pushing towards uh, action. Faith must produce action. We've been talking about that more and more as we've been moving through this series. That's true here. He wants a practical response. But remember, it's just that. James is saying, first and foremost, it is a response. To God's grace. That God takes the initiative. God brings the change. So for those of you who have been wounded by conflict, there's grace. For those of you who have wounded others by conflict, there's grace. If you're a parent who thinks you've got it all, you know, you've, you've, you've got it all messed up in this sense with your kids, your, your little ones, when it comes to your words and how you interact with them, how conflict is just produced and it just doesn't feel like it's going well, there is grace. God takes the first step. And what's the condition of this grace? Well, we just need to simply receive it. Um, which leads us to the final thought, and that is we see that the path forward is through humility. Um, the path forward is through humility. This is a radical thought. Because I think for us, uh, maybe, maybe for us individually, certainly for us as a culture, when it comes to conflict, the path forward tends to be self-assertion, right? Just Get yourself worked up and do, do what you need to do to protect yours, get yours. But James is flipping that all in its head. 
He says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. That's the conclusion he has. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. James is saying resolving conflict must begin with submitting to God. What does that mean? It means receiving his grace. It means placing ourselves under his rule. It means placing ourselves under his guidance. It means resisting the devil, which means refusing to do anything that is evil. You know, it's interesting to me. I feel like the depictions that we have of the devil in cartoon or whatever it might be is often the devil's main goal is just to get us to do bad things. But that's really not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to distract us or to get us moving away from God, to separate us from him, which includes bad things, certainly, but it also can include good things, these over-desires we've talked about. Here's a script that the devil might uh, give us in the middle of conflict, I don't know how this works spiritually, so just bear with me. But here's the script, practically speaking, of how this does play out. You're the victim. They wronged you. You need to take it out on them because you're right. Um, I had a pastor friend once say, I never forget these words. He said, but in relationship, being right is not always what's right. Did you catch that? In relationship, being right is not always what's right. James is saying we need to resist the desire to tear down, resist all of that, and the devil will flee from you, he says. But notice, we only break this power that conflict can have over us when we submit, when we surrender to God. Um, some of the greatest advice I, I, I feel like I can share with folks when they're going through, it's not from me originally, but like what I can share with people in the midst of conflict, if this is you in the midst of conflict, is counterintuitive, but it's so helpful. And that is, let's say you're in the midst of conflict and you, know, you have a little bit of a timeout between rounds. You know? Good, take that timeout and use that time to reflect and think, which we usually do intuitively, right? But instead of, during that timeout, focusing on what the other person is doing to you, what they are contributing to the problem, what I encourage you and myself to do in those times is actually to focus on what our own contributions are to that situation. And to really reflect on that. Friends, that's not easy. And I'll tell you, to also get practical about it, the, the rare times that I'm actually able to get to that place are the times when I actually pray. Going back to what James said earlier, you have not because you don't ask God. You ask with the wrong motives. Let me play that out for you. So in the midst of conversation, you know, conflict or taking time out, and I'm just, I'll go to God, and often the prayers will go something like this, Ooh, God, I'm just so upset. Because he knows, by the way. There's no point of pretending, hey, I'm not really upset, but bear with me in this prayer. Like, I'm, I'm just upset. He wants to hear our hearts. God, I'm just so upset. And, oh, they, you know, I don't know. The way that they're justifying this, it just doesn't make sense. It's not, it's not right. And, oh, but I know you want me to love. I know you want me to serve. And I'm just going to confess right now, that's not easy right now. This, I mean, I'm, I'm letting you into my prayer life, Okay. And what ends up happening, see, I believe in the, the power of prayer, first and foremost, that God answers prayers. I believe in the power of prayer. We pray, and God it, it, it influences outcomes miraculously. That's a whole other sermon. I believe in that power, but I also believe in the power of actually praying, of in the midst of it, God's Spirit who dwells in us, verse 5, getting into our hearts and, and starting to break down the brokenness, the healing, and conflict, which, by the way, often starts always is in me, is in us. Uh, we need to look in ourselves. We need to identify the narratives. We need to understand what it is our, we are really driving at. And God gives us a tool for that. 
It's, it's prayers through talking to him. Because I'll, I'll guarantee you, if you try to pray to him based on his character in the Bible, you're not going to be able to say, God, he is, this person who I'm in a fight with is just so bad, I want you to smite him. Like, you just won't be able to do that. You can't do it. This, you get, you get the point. Um, what's the key in all this? Why is all of this even possible? Because I don't know about you, if apart from the, where we're going now in the sermon, all of this would just really be pie in the sky. If you, are, if you don't know about Jesus, if you're just checking out Christianity, all of this, to me, if I were you, wouldn't make sense. It's just a bunch of like, whatever. I think you need to go back to self-assertion. I need to go back to self-assertion. Except all of this is based on the gospel. All of this is based on what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is Jesus had every right, God himself had every right to be in conflict with us. Actually, we picked a fight with him. We're an enmity, you know, we had made him a God. That is basically the start of the gospel. That we just chose our own ways, that we want to do our own things. You want to be our husband and we want to be your bride? No, I'm going to do my own thing. God, thank you. And while we are never truly innocent, he is truly innocent as he looks at that relationship. And yet, what did he do? He came in an act of great humility, submitting himself to God the Father, resisting the devil to go ultimately to the cross, to die for us. And you know what humility then does? Humility then puts Jesus in his seat of judgment. Okay, we, we, I'm sorry, we don't have time to go through the rest of the, the scripture. Uh, you know, every week is kind of a, a, an act of like cutting things from what we can talk about um, for the sake of time. But if you look at like what's going on in the rest of this scripture, he's talking about grieve, mourn, and wail. You know, turn your mourning into uh, laughter into mourning, away from joy. He's not saying the Christian life is not joyful. No, the Christian life is very joyful, even the by the way of conflict. But he's talking about a heart posture again in humility that we need to have. But then this last thought he says here, looking down at verses eleven through twelve, he talks about how when we get in a fight, we're essentially often putting ourselves in the judge judge's seat. Right? That's what he's talking about when that's. God's place. That's Jesus' place. Humility and the path forward in light of what Jesus has done for us is actually saying in the midst of fighting, you know, letting Jesus be in his seat. So oftentimes when we're fighting, we're holding court, right? When we're in conflict, we're saying, okay, I'm going to be the judge here. Thank you very much. Also jury and executioner. Um, Let's Let's have court now, okay? You're guilty, right? That's how, we, that's how we approach conflict often. But humility, in light of the gospel, says when Jesus shows up and he asks for his seat, we say, oh, yeah, that is your seat, not mine. You go ahead and sit there. And then Jesus looks in and he sees all our sin and he sees all our desires. He sees all our motives. And what does he do? He pronounces us as a good judge, as a perfect judge, as guilty. That's what he does. And when he pronounces the other of, of judgment, we say, all right. And then when he turns to us and he says, you're guilty, and we're like, oh, no. Um, he says, I've looked at it all. I understand the hearts. I know everybody's part in this. You're all guilty. But the point is, I came to deal with that guilt. I came to die for you. That's what the gospel's all about, that he, was, he took on great humility. And he, when he went to the cross, and because of that, God raised him up and exalted him um, as, as even James suggests, is how it works here. That's the gospel. And you know what that does when Jesus has done that for you and me? It kind of just takes the sting out of the teeth, out of conflict, does it not? So if you're in conflict, there's no need now to be, for instance, defensive or to be offended, you know? Because if God loves you that much that he gave himself for you, he loves you that much, why would we get defend, like, uh, defensive? 
Why would we get offended? We could just, our love is so secure in who he is and what he's done. Why is it? So the, the, the conclusion of the matter then is just to learn and just, just more deeply draw from who he is. And that's actually what, that's what James says in verse 8. Here's the call to action. Draw near to him as he will draw near to you. Come near to him and he will come near to you. Lay down your arms. Literally, the battle arms that we take up in these verbal disagreements. Lay those down. Some of you may say, but, I don't, I, but you, don't, you don't know what I've done. And that would be true. I don't know what you've done. But I can tell you that God's response to you is, but I give more grace. You can go to him. You can draw near. Are you facing things? Are you facing conflict that feels helpless, that feels hopeless? God invites you to draw near to him. And when you humble yourself, the promise is he will lift you up. Those are words to cling to. Those words are not helpless. Those are not hopeless. It's to humble ourselves, and God will work it out, not in our own strength, but in trusting and watching him move as we draw near to him. Um, what I'd love to do right now, actually, as we, as we get ready to song, if the band wants to start heading up, is just kind of reflect on this a little bit. Um, Whatever burden or guilt or shame that you might have or you, 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 that might be there in your spirit, if, if you have one, uh, what I'd encourage us to do at this time is to go ahead and just kind of like identify it, articulate it in our minds, but immediately after we articulate it in our minds to say to ourselves, but God gives more grace. So maybe it's something like, you know, I, I, it's something I did this last week that I'm really ashamed of articulate that, but then say, but God gives more grace. Maybe it's in my relationship with my kids that I'm just feeling really bad about, and then articulate, but God gives more grace. Maybe it's the way I've approached certain things in the job, in the workplace, or whatever it might be in my relationship with my roommates, um, or a a friend or family member in in the past. Or maybe it's just one of those things where it's just like, you know, you've just been so angry, and you, you want to try to identify what's driving you underneath the surface, but you can't, and it's just, ooh, but you recognize that, man, it's been coming out in unhealthy ways. It's, it's with, with those closest to you. Maybe it's just to pause and say, God, this is something that's going on in my life. But then quickly follow it with a thought, but God gives more grace. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you is the promise. Friends, conflict will happen. It's not a matter of, of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, but when it does... Or if you're in the throes of it now, uh, turn not to your way or the highway. Turn not to tearing the other down. But instead, let's, let's look beneath the surface in our own hearts what motives are driving us. And most importantly, let's draw near to the one who's done all of this for us. The one who understands what's going on yet loves us fiercely. Let's go to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that are just so relevant in our lives. The fact of the matter is there's just, there is a lot of conflict in our hearts. The good news is that uh, it's not something that should surprise us. And the even better news is there's a way forward. And, and, and the best news is, is that's because of what you've done for us. You have broken the power of conflict. In fact, the greatest conflict that could ever, the greatest charge that ever could be raised against us that we are enemies of you, that we sin against you, has been taken care of in what Jesus did on the cross. We thank you for that. And we thank you for the power that that gives us in the midst of conflict to draw upon it, to recognize even when we're upset or angry, that you could have been angry and upset to us, to the moon and back, and yet you chose to lay down your life. Would you help us do that for others in conflict? 
Would you help us to be a church that doesn't just pretend it's not there or when it's there to not engage it in ways that just are, are selfish or proud? We confess in advance that we will do these things, but Father, because of what you've done for us, help us in all of this. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name, the one who died for us. Amen. Well, at this time, we're going to continue worship uh, by taking this morning's offering. Again, if you're new with us or if, or if you've been a couple times and you, you haven't filled out one of our connection cards, we'd love to be in touch with you. This is a great way that we can, we can get you information, but also just um, um, stay connected with you. We do read the prayer requests and, and pray for people. If you're interested in looking at one of these teams or whatever it might be, uh, you can sign that. It's not signing yourself in blood. It's just to get information. It's just to get, uh, it just let us know that there might be some interest there. Um, but, uh, but at this time, we're also going to give back a portion of what God has given to, to us in the form of worship. If you're here today and you're visiting, we just would love this from you. If, if you call current your home, uh, this is a time in which we do that. Again, I, as I say uh, many weeks, I know for, for many of you, as my family does, we give online. Uh, that's, that's, that's good, but I would let's take this opportunity in worship now to reflect on that and to praise him for his kindnesses, um, not only to us individually, but also as a church. Um, but let's continue to sing, sing now.